When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Hong Kong can be almost impossible to explain to those who are not from here. The city too often has to struggle with the shorthand of those writing about it from afar, and for audiences who have little understanding what the city is actually like. International financial center, Asia's world city, semi-autonomous, frontline of the new Cold War, stuck with COVID-0, this shorthand misses the complexity of the city. Karen Cheung's memoir tells her story, one that she herself doesn't admit gets at the full picture of what Hong Kong is, yet fleshes out more of how people should think about this city. The Impossible City, a Hong Kong memoir, is about more than just the headlines the past few years, a dive into the things that make Hong Kong different, diverse, and difficult. And we're going to talk about them today. Karen Cheung is a writer and journalist from Hong Kong. Her essays, cultural criticism, and reported features have appeared on This American Life and in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and other publications. She was formerly a reporter at Hong Kong Free Press and was co-founding editor of Still Loud, an indie magazine about culture and music in Hong Kong. Today, Karen and I talk about Hong Kong, the home city for both of us, and what it means to grow up in such a dense, unsure, and misunderstood place. So, Karen, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast today. You know, perhaps it's best to start by, you know, talking about your story. You know, what what brought your family to Hong Kong? Where did you grow up? And what got you to a place to start telling your story in the impossible city? Um, so... <laughs> it's always a difficult thing um, to talk about my family because I think, you know, I do try to place some distance um, between myself and them. Um, the long, well, the short version of what is the longer version um, in the book is that um, my paternal side of the family came here in around the 1950s. Um, and that was right after um well, not right after, but it was after the Second World War. Um, and um, and my mother is from China. Um, and she, well, technically, my, my father's side of the family is also from China. Um, but it's, there is, you know, in Hong Kong, there's like the, this like very weird generational thing where um, people have different, just kind of, 
decades, like you can kind of like differentiate like, oh, like how long does it take for someone to be here before you can say like, oh, they're from Hong Kong or they're a Hong Konger or, you know, like what defines like what um, identification they have. Like, for example, like my mother never really had like permanent residency in Hong Kong. Um, and she's more immediately from China. She grew up in China, whereas with my father and with um, his siblings, they all grew up in Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, so that's my my family side of it. Um, I, I grew up here as well. Um, I mentioned in the book that I was born in Shenzhen. Um, this is to this day a very baffling <laughs> decision, I think, for... To, to just wrap my head around because um, there are, you know, like what I said, you know, these like bureaucratic difficulties um, in terms of, you know, where your birth certificate is from. And later as an adult, I would learn, you know, there are different vaccine requirements, for instance, or health checks. Um, but I was born in Shenzhen um, and my brother, who was who was a year um, younger than me? He was born in Hong Kong, um, but yeah. Um, so I I came here when I was. I mean, basically, my father's family has always been here. Um, so I I grew up for all of my life in Hong Kong, um, barring that first couple of months where I couldn't, I guess, travel as baby. Um, and and I've been here since. Um, and I think part of this connection I have with the city or wanting to write about it, I think. Um, it took me a long time to realize this, but I think it has partly to do with not going overseas to study as well. Um, I think a lot of people who, for for instance, might have gone to boarding schools and then, you know, on to universities overseas, and then they come back as you know, um, a fully fledged adult in their mid twenties, they will have a different relationship with the city where they might have to sort of find their way back a little bit. Um, and for me, it really is growing up alongside the city and having witnessed, um, a lot of the changes that this place has been going through. Um, and I, so, yeah, so I think that's why I wanted to write the book. (laughs) Um, and let's talk about, yeah, the relationship. No, and, and and that's a good point you raise because like because I was someone who who went overseas for university um, and then came back um, and actually came back I think after after a small stint in grad school. Um, oh, that's a long. And time. so I, I well, I, it, it would have been six years I think. Um, so so I myself missed a lot of a lot of the changes that had happened. I remember coming back and. Um, realizing that like a lot of things had changed not just not just from politics but also just like how the city like what was new in the city what was um what had grown up like been developed in the city and this maybe actually is a really good segue in talking about kind of the first chapter of your book which talks about um western district which you know sheng wan sang pun candy town um and you know i i came back i think after the mtr went out to went out to western yeah um end of 2014 but even then you know i i I moved out here a couple years ago and even like even even in that smaller period i mean you you notice how the district has changed you know there are a lot more dog friendly restaurants now let's put it that way yeah there's a lot of (laughs) i have noticed that um and and but but this is but but i'm asking is why i get into kind of the uh, talking about 
gentrification is kind of one way the city has changed. I wonder if you could, you, you talk about this a bit in your book, um, but I wonder if you might get into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, the way that the first chapter is um, structured in a way is like all these different kinds of maps uh, of Hong Kong that is like a way of seeing Hong Kong. Um, but initially that wasn't what I had planned for that. I, yeah, for that chapter, initially what I wanted to do was really sort of like a tale of three neighborhoods. And I wanted to go deeper into really um, basically some sort of, you know, Shang Shui and also Western district, which I see as, you know, having these really changes that basically really completely changed the, the neighborhood um, mm-hmm. over the past 10 years. And I've seen that sort of happen. Um, and, you know, with 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 Sham Shui Po, it is sort of like a gentrification that's brought about by these ideas of, you know, this art hipster, like in, in Hong Kong, it's like Mountain Tang, right? And it's with, with that gentrification, it's really about them um, and sort of this new cultural capital and also people with spending power. And I don't want to... I, I'm, I, I want to be careful to not like demonize them because I don't think, you know, it's, it's essentially um, this craze or, you know, this, this superficial thing going on, which a lot of people in the media painted it as, um, but the, the very concrete, you know, um, consequence of what happened when people decided that Sham Shui Po is now a cool area to be in and, you know, is artsy now is that it drove up a lot of rents and it really changed um, the types of shops, uh, you know, who they cater to, what kind of spending power, you know, that range. Um, And, you know, that, and, and as we know, you know, it's not, it's a very working class neighborhood. Um, And so it it has been going through these changes in the past couple of years, Sheng Shui a lot more so, um, and a lot further back. It's really started since the milk formula scandal. Um, And because it's so close to Hong Kong, um, it's it's become this place where people just come through and buy milk formula and then go back. And then mm. as a result, also, you know, you have shops that are not catering to people who live there. Um, it's really catering to people across the border. And that also changes your relationship with the streets that you grew up with. You know, maybe you're someone who has lived there with your family all your life. Um, and I think with Western District, it's, it's interesting because... Um, it's it's really a gentrification of like race almost like expats. Um, it's almost like a gentrification that's caused by you know, for a very long time this place was close to central but not close enough that people would be super attracted to living here because you know mm-hmm. it, it was really you could you could come here by tram you could walk. Um, there are like a couple of buses um, that would take you to central, but really you know it's it's a little especially with Kennedy Town right. It's really at the western edge of it. Um, And so it was a lot less popular. Um, I lived there when I was, I I first lived in Water Street, which is not in Kennedy Town. It's more closer to um, Sakhong Joy area. Um, But then Mm. after a year, I moved to Kennedy Town. I lived there for about four or five years. Um, And that was right when, as you said, the MTR line, the train line was opening. Um, 
And I, it's, it's very weird to be in a place where like, I remember this like completely <laughs> just like kind of crappy bar. And it was one of the only bars in the area at the time. And for some reason there was shisha. Um, so you would just get like these people who are facing out to the tram, um, the tram line, and they would just be sitting outside and, you know, there would just be one table cause the place is so small and they would just be like washing the trams and like smoking, like on a hookah pipe. Um, and I remember just like sometimes walking home and seeing that bar. And then now there's like, I don't know, there's like too many pubs and bars and, and all that kind of even restaurants to count. And, and it's very weird. I think when you've sort of had this, you've created this attachment to a place based on, um, just like your memories of it. And also like the time that you live there, you know, everyone, when we're young, we tend to be become very attached to a place, I think. Um, And so I was growing very attached to this neighborhood and then having seen it, you know, transform over the past couple of years made me really sentimental. And so I wanted to use it sort of as a jumping off point to talk about um, the levels of changes that are happening in Hong Kong. And, you know, political is the one that, gets the most attention in news, but I also want to talk about it from like a geographical perspective Mm. um, and also, you know, in a way economic and cultural perspective. And so that was sort of like um, an opening chapter that allowed me to really talk about these places because ultimately, you know, I have had uh, one of my early readers who's a good friend of mine, who's actually in the book, um, Holmes, and he like he made a suggestion, and he was like, "I I wonder if that might be like too steep of a of a reader who's not from Hong Kong to be coming into and just reading as a first chapter." And so I wrote the preface as like a more like easier, you know, <laughs> to stomach sort of um, entry level piece, um, so that people who who pick up the book wouldn't be like, oh my God, like she's like referencing all these places in Hong Kong that like I have no idea about or, you know, don't necessarily care about. And so, yeah, so that's like, quote unquote, the first chapter, but it was like my way of like mapping out my own relationship with all these neighborhoods. Yeah, and there's, and there's, I mean, it, it, it kind of then spins off to so many different things you notice about the city and how it's changed. I'm, I, we're going to kind of jump around from, from topic to topic a little bit. Um, but, you know, you talk about economic changes. You know, you talk about the housing crisis, which is always presented as, was it too many people, not enough land? Yeah. Um, the answer is to make more land. Yeah. Um, and and obviously this is like a big debate in, in Hong Kong, whether or not that's accurate, yeah. how much they're in Hong Kong developers. But, but one thing you in the book is you really kind of make the housing crisis kind of real um, in terms of kind of real people. And I wonder if you might talk about, you know, talk about Hong Kong's uh, housing issues um, with relevance to, you know, real people in your life. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there is definitely... Um, it's, it's important for media in general to tell the news of like how the housing crisis affects, you know, the poorest people in Hong Kong. And, you know, we have a lot of those stories about, you know, caged homes and subdivided flats and everything. Um, but it's always kind of told with this lens of like almost like poverty porn. Um, and, you know, it is an important thing to just really uh, let 
I don't want to say let the world know, but like shine a light on. Um, but I kind of want to just stay away. Like I wanted to talk more about like the middle. <laughs> so I wanted to talk yeah. about not, you know, the most expensive flats that sometimes, you know, um, business publications like Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg would tend to do, you know, features about, you know, these micro, I, I can't remember what they're called anymore, but it's like just like, like nano little, flats, little, I think is the yeah, term like now. Nano flats, yeah. So, you know, those also get a lot of attention. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you get cage homes, which also get attention. Mm. But then I kind of really wanted to just like um, talk about more, like a normal, like, I don't want to say those aren't normal either, but, you know, just like a more general sort of like mainstream, like, um, experience of, of really trying to find a flat in Hong Kong. And I am someone, and I always, you know, mentioned that in a book, I, I am someone who, despite, you know, having, um, weird choices for careers, um, and, you know, not, choosing to basically not make as much money as I could have. Um, I am because of this, I am upwardly mobile and I, you know, am fluent in English, et cetera. Um, and you know, despite, <laughs> despite my financial circumstances, um, I think between the ages of 20 to 25, when I was really pretty broke, um, I, I am still someone with like relative privilege and yet, you know, like, it was so difficult for me to find a place to live in that was just a little bit not um, catastrophic. Um, and, you know, when you're young, like when I was 18 to 21, that catastrophic was kind of fun because, you know, you're you're basically 18 years old and you're living with people who eventually become your friends. And, you know, it's all bunk beds and all, you know, tiny spaces fighting for toilets and everything but it, it was fine because everyone kind of is fine with that um at that age um and then the older i got a little bit the more i realized i had this sort of weird realization i think when i was 25 which was that i had thought all my life that i was an extrovert <laughs> and then i think i hit the age of 25 and I got my, uh, I got a room for, have like my own room for the first time. And I finally was able to basically shut the door, read in a room for hours by myself and really not talk to anybody. Um, my room had windows, which was like a huge plus. I've lived in rooms with no windows before and the view was just green and it was like incredible. And I was like, oh my God, I never have to leave the flat again. I was like, why did I always have to like, you know, why did I used to go out all the time? And I realized it was because like, I had no personal space and I had no concept of what personal space is until I was 25 because I, I didn't have that, that understanding. Um, and so I think because of that, you know, and I, I've always, I've had a lot of uh, weird flatmates along the way. Um, some were better than the others. I've tried really just to talk about the better ones mostly um, in the chapter, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted that very real experience of like being in your twenties and then having like, oh, this person you become very close to because they almost become like a family member. Um, you see them every day. These are their quirks. You know, they're my best friends. And then, you know, and then most people have that relationship with a flatmate, but not with that many. And, you know, the name of that chapter is 22 um, roommates because 
I was just counting the other day. I just like, yeah. before I wrote the chapter, I sat down and I was like, oh, this person lived with me for like two months. That person lived with me for like maybe half a year. And then I just sort of listed all of them. Um, and I was like, this is a ridiculous amount of people to go through in like less than five years. Um, so, you know, it was really, I think, a way for me to try to, you know, sneak in all of that research and also discussion discussion of housing problems in Hong Kong, but make it feel a little bit more real where you, I hope, you know, like if I, if I did it well, you know, that people would be invested in this search of mine for, okay, you know, where is she going to live next? Is she going to feel comfortable here? Is she going to be able to find um, a home, which is really, you know, what the chapter and on a larger scale, I think the whole book is about. And, you know, I didn't really come to a conclusion. Um, And I came to a very sad, (laughs) I came to a very sad realization at the end of the chapter, which is that like, you know, if you're someone who's partnered and, you know, if you get married or whatever it is, but if you're someone who's partnered, your rent problems go away much more quickly. You know, you still Mm. have them, but part of, you know, what, was difficult for me was that when I wasn't living with my partner, you know, every time a roommate moves out, you're like, all of a sudden that month, you know, 6,000 Hong Kong dollars is gone because like you can't necessarily find someone to sublet it. And like for no reason at all, you know, like you just lost like $6,000 and that's like a lot of money when, you know, you don't have a very mm-hmm. high salary, which is the majority of people in Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, it was just like me trying to like, make this sort of abstract problem of, oh, Hong Kong has a land problem, Hong Kong has a housing problem, and make it just like a lot more personal and a lot more like, um, yeah, hopefully more real for a person reading it. Um, And hopefully that would inspire them to become a little bit more interested in reading up about, you know, how it affects like everyday people um, in Hong Kong. You know, another thing you get into in the book, which I which I know, I know that people outside the city are just not going to understand, um, is the is the international local school divide. You know, you you um, you 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 were in both systems. Um, yeah. Uh, I I was only in the in the international school system. I'm I'm an ESF kid. Um, but you know, is 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 just like a. This is just this is just this is. Sorry, you you were gonna say? No, I was like, yeah, yes, I did. No, but go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, exactly right. And but like, but like, so so we both like understand like what that means and what like that implies about about. Um, but it's something that people just outside of Hong Kong just don't. I mean, this is not something they think about because they just don't have it. And so, but I wonder if you might could talk a little about about that distinction. Yeah. Um, and and kind of what that what that means for the students that go through it. Um, it's obviously a certain understanding of international that yeah. leads to certain like assumptions and ways of thinking about the world, et cetera. I was wondering if Mike kind of talk about that distinction a bit. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So first of all, like I, um, I had to come across pieces and they're more sort of either blog pieces or commentary pieces, but I had seen pieces written by people overseas before that also actually talk about the international school 
um, system. And a lot of the things that they were saying were actually remarkably similar to what I was sort of trying to figure out in terms of the Hong Kong local international divide. Um, and I can't remember, I have to find the piece, but it was written by someone, I think, um, who was... I'm trying to remember where, if it's in Southeast Asia or somewhere. Um, but, you know, there are actually these weird international school networks. I guess one of them is United World College. You know, it it mm. it, it is, you know, in a way, an international school that is really found across the world. And I think the author was referring to, you know, the quote unquote, we don't really, you know, there's it, this term is debatable. Right. But like the quote unquote global South, like there are international school systems as well. And it's always really set up to benefit, benefit, um, you know, children of um, politicians or um, diplomats that are posted overseas. And so you know, I think it is a system that does exist elsewhere, but, you know, in Hong Kong, um, which I try to write about as well, you know, that, that, it's it's especially weird because, you know, now that we're so-called post-colonial, you know, it a lot of the people who go to these international schools aren't even children of expats, you know, they're just like Hong Kong people whose parents, you know, had a bit of money in the time that they were growing up and then decided that they wanted to send their kids to an international school. Um, and in Hong Kong, a lot of the time, the reason is so that they would be English speaking. Um, and, you know, I, I write about that. So my first six years were, were, at, were at an international school. Um, and it was, a very profoundly alienating experience for me. I don't know if it was the same for you, um, but it was very alienating to me because nobody um, in my family, apart from my brother, grew up in Singapore. Nobody else spoke English. Um, and my brother didn't live here. So I never, like, there was no one in my life up until that point who was someone who would speak English in their everyday life. And then to all of a sudden be thrusted into the system where everybody and even their parents were people who speak English and you it's it's because when you're a kid you don't really understand necessarily class you understand that some people are richer than others but you don't understand that this is like a system and you don't understand that with it comes different culture and different habits and different you know mannerisms and you know, opportunities and and you know the kind of future promises that isn't something that a, as a kid, you would necessarily intuitively understand. Um, and so, like, I think I just spent the first six years basically just being really confused because um, I knew that, you know, I knew that my, my father was rich enough to send me to an international school, but I also knew that, you know, we were living in, as I describe in the book, you know, like the majority of my time was spent at this Tonglao that my grandmother raised her kids in. And it's very old. It's one of those, you know, like there's no dry, wet demarcation in the toilet, which just means, you know, like you shower in the same place that that's like right next to your toilet. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, and, you know, there'll be rats rotting in like the staircases sometimes because there are a lot of rats. And like, I just like had no, like I had no consistency. I feel like, like I, and I was completely fine with it in the beginning because again, kids are very adaptable, you know, like you don't really, kids aren't going to be like, oh, this is like richer and that's less rich. And I prefer this. Most of the time kids really just survive in the, the, the environment that they're in. 
And I, I didn't realize that, you know, that sort of consistent, rich, privileged class, um, what that looks like until I went to the international school. And so I graduated. I wasn't particularly happy most of my time there. Um, I did make friends towards the end. In the beginning, I didn't because I couldn't really speak English. Um, And then, you know, um, my father was just like, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to send you to a secondary international school. Like your school fees already cost way too much in the first six years. Um, And so I was just kind of scrambling to figure out, okay, now I have to completely change, you know, the way I understand everything again, because the school environment is different. The language is once again, different, you know, everyone is speaking Cantonese, obviously. Um, and you know, the, the education system is different. You know, um, I, I was the last batch of people who took HKCEs, um, like Wei Hao, which is like, um, a system that doesn't exist here anymore. You only, you only have to take one exam, but back in my time it was, you have to take two exams. And I was just scrambling to basically try to learn <laughs> Chinese all over again, which I thought I, I knew. Um, but um, it was that. It was learning ancient Chinese texts. Um, and then eventually, you know, at the time, that didn't really strike me as much. But I think, you know, once I graduated and I went to university, um, I started noticing that there are these differences between international school kids who stayed in that system and went to a local university. Um, I started noticing the distance I think they had between, um, you know, especially the politics and also just even stuff like, you know, like uh, preferences for what to do on a weekend, right? Like even these things would be completely different and really shaped by both your upbringing and also the money that your family has. And so I was trying to just, at, at the same time, I was trying to reconfigure like what it means for me to be part of this place. Um, and that was when, you know, a lot of protests were happening in Hong Kong um, or beginning to happen. And so I was, I, you know, I talk about it in the book as well, which is that like, why focus on international school kids, right? Because there's such a small population of like, um, the whole Hong Kong school population. Um, and it's, it's very low. If I remember correctly, I have to check the figure again, but it was like 6% when I wrote it or something. Um, but you know, it, that's so larger than I would have thought actually 6%. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's pretty, yeah. It's like definitely less than 10, but, um, So I was just trying to figure out, like, why care so much about it? And then I just realized, you know, for me, it's really a way for me to talk about both um, belonging, you know, and also what activism means, um, what identity means, how it's related to class and language. But also, you know, like, in a way, you can kind of use that experience and have it as a lens to through which to understand also the expat experience, for instance, or also, you know, there are certain kinds of apolitical Hong Kongers who decided that, you know, their life is in, for example, investment banking, or, you know, they want to work in certain global firms. And for them, you know, a lot of the 
political movements in Hong Kong have been a nuisance, like nothing much than a nuisance. And these people, like it's, it, they're not that, they don't have to be international school kids to think that way. And it's not that different from, you know, the mentality that I try to outline in these chapters. And so for me, it really is just like sort of a way for me to talk about these larger issues of race and class and language and how that affects your own relationship with the place. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, and like I, I mean, and and I, I definitely had that moment. I think it must must have been in college. Where I kind of looked back at my international school time, and I'm like, oh, class. <laughs> it was ri- this was riven with class dynamics. I just did not realize at the time. Um, I was like, oh god. Um, did you? But no, but, but it's. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Did Did you? I don't know. Did you like have this like also like have this like little quest to like re uh, reevaluate or like understand like your own relationship with the city. Like I find that a lot of ESF kids, um, especially those who decided to return to the city um, have this like little journey. Um, I'll say it's an ongoing process. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a process that, that I think is um, uh, at least for me personally, you know, it, it's something I'm, I'm constantly thinking about and revisiting and kind of just dealing with the very sometimes fraught question, although maybe it's only fraught to our group where it's like, what actually is a Hong Kong person? Um, And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, well, again, I I say it's a, it's a fraught question, although maybe it's only fraught to, um, to this, to this tiny group. Probably most Hong Kong people don't, don't think it's a fraught question at all. Yeah. Um. I, I do want to get into a couple of things. And, and one thing I want to get into um, is your time as a, as a culture writer. Um, yeah. You know, it, like, you know, you talk about hidden agenda, hidden agenda was always something that I always heard about, but was never organized enough to go to yeah. um, until it was, until it was too late. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people, I think they talk about Hong Kong as a quote unquote cultural wasteland. The city isn't living up to some kind of ideal of what a cultural center should be or something. Yeah. Um, but but you know you were actually on the ground. You you covered the art scene. You covered the music scene. Um, you founded a a magazine about it. Just kind of what what was your time kind of as a as a culture writer in the city? Kind of what did you? I I, I guess how does that lead you to think about the city's culture? So. I, I I wonder if it's a generation thing as well. Like, I would imagine you're kind of like around the same generation as mine, like give or take like maybe five years max. I, I won't know what your age is. But, you know, I, I do feel like it is a thing that we especially have grown up with. Um, I was always told that Hong Kong is a cultural desert. And I don't think people are told Like, I don't think kids these days are told this anymore, because they grew up in a time where, you know, like, um arts like contemporary art in hong kong really has sort of Mm, taken mm, off mm. um and i remember when i was i think maybe 18 um reporting on what was then art fair i think it was called which is what later became art basil um but i remember going there as sort of like this local um (laughs) um local newspaper like scmp basically had like this this like program for kids like this program for students and I signed up and I think I just like went and like got to see art for free and then had to write this like 200 200 word paragraph about it um so I guess that was like my earliest like 
forays into <laughs> culture writing. Um, but I always, that was always something that I, I think I wanted to do. Um, because before I realized I wanted to be a reporter um, and a news reporter, I was already sort of writing and reviewing arts things. Um, when I was in university, I first interned as um yeah, I first interned as like a, a, a university like critic sort of um, for um, a local drama platform. Um, it was like an English language drama platform. And I also interned at a place which was like a underground music showcase. And that was sort of, I think, the first time I really started writing about music. Um, but Hidden Agenda, you know, I, I really think it's sort of, I don't know, it's like serendipity or something. I... I never really thought I was, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to like find out what the indie or underground music scene is in Hong Kong. It was, I, I just remember this. I was in university and I was just like really walking past like one of those big notice boards that has like a million flyers about um, what activities there are. And then someone, there was just like this poster and it was like, oh, like this band is performing at Hidden Agenda this weekend. And it's like this live house or whatever. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that these things existed um, in Hong Kong. Even when I was in secondary school, I was always trying to save up <clears throat> to go to gigs. And I, I basically started doing that um, when I was 16 by myself. And I never had any friends around me who would go to any of these shows with me. So I would just show up like right after school and then like queue for three hours and try to like get close to the front. Um, and that would be for bigger shows like bands that come um, from overseas to Hong Kong. But so when I discovered, when I went to Hit Agenda, I was like, oh my God, there is like a system um, for local performances here. Like there are homegrown bands. Um, they play in this factory, you know, sort of setup. And it is sort of in a way um, a scene. It is a subculture and it is a scene. And that was so surprising to me at the time you know, given all these Hong Kong is a cultural desert, whatever <laughs> proclamations that the adults in our life have had. Um, and so, you know, ever since that point, I was 18, 19, um, all the way until the last iteration of Hidden Agenda closed, which was, I think, one or two years ago when it got rebranded as This Town Needs. Um, I, I was like basically a regular um, at the shows all the time. And eventually I started making friends there. Um, I started there's because like there's I think, you know, generously, I think it used to be about like maybe 100 or 200 people who would go to show, shows all the time. And then I think that number sort of increased over the past couple of years, like maybe it's like three or 400. But over course of 10 years right there are people that you just see so many times that you're like you know we might as well say hi now because I like I, I know your face and I've known your face for five years um and so we eventually started making friends um while going to shows and then at that point I was just like you know what like I want to write about it and I know that in English language reporting there really isn't that many that talks about um scenes in a way they really talk about things that are more accessible <clears throat> to an English reading audience. And because of that, it'll be stuff like, you know, things are happening in a cultural center, you know, these like theater, theater productions, um, or it'll be things like, I don't know, like a visual art museum opening or whatever. Um, and I know that there are scenes that are 
a lot harder for people to know about outside of Hong Kong. And so I, at that time with my friends, I wanted to try to translate some of these scenes um, and knowing that there definitely will, will be, you know, secret music lovers somewhere who, who really are trying to find um, these pockets of people and these gigs to go to, but they just had like no information about it whatsoever and didn't know where to start. Um, so that, yeah, when I wrote about it in the book, it was really like accumulation of like these past 10 years of <laughs> trying to get people to pay attention to um, musicians I've grown to really care about and whose careers and music I follow for a very long time. I want to end with one more kind of theme from your book, and then maybe we'll kind of wrap with some with some big picture questions again. Yeah. Um, but you you talk about mental health in your book, both your own struggles with mental health, but also the problem that Hong Kong has with mental health in general. Um, you know, I, I it it does seem like our generation has a better understanding of mental health and yeah. how the way our society is structured makes the problem worse. Yeah. Um, but in your view, kind of what does kind of Hong Kong's social structure, yeah. how does that affect how, you know, we talk about and understand the problems with, or, or, or the, the question of mental health? Uh, you know, like recently with COVID in Hong Kong, mm. you know, the, the mental health of, Hong Kong people here have been really pretty terrible. And, you know, there's been report last week about um, the suicide index and, and rates and so on. Um, And I don't know if this is like really related to social structure so much, but I think there's two things. Like, first of all, like, um, you know, when the government was talking about like, Oh, like, you know, we should, try to like look on a positive side or whatever it is. Um, And, you know, this is difficult, but we'll get through it. Um, You know, they were talking about in relation to COVID, but there was this huge problem as well during 2019 when, you know, the protests were ongoing for six months and all these experts, you know, medical experts, mental health experts um, were sounding the alarm for how traumatic it could be for especially a lot of younger protesters who might be really protesting for the first time. And, you know, it just, it was a huge problem that never got solved. It it was never, it was barely addressed or recognized officially. And so, you know, like that is already, I can't even imagine, you know, in 10 years or whatever, you know, these are, I don't want to use a word like trauma lightly because, you know, it's always like shifting understandings and then people would be like, okay, is this like over dramatizing it? But I do really think a lot of what happened in 2019 was traumatic for a lot of people. And we, we have not dealt with it at all. And so I really don't know what, what that's going to look like in 10 years when people are looking back in this and being like, okay, like I literally have not, you know, achieved closure <laughs> in terms of what has happened. And, you know, it's an ongoing problem also for people who left Hong Kong and people who are still here, you know, um, for a lot of people who left, I know they're also struggling with, with issues of just really be- feeling like they're forced to be away from home. Um, and so, you know, when, what happened becomes sort of almost a taboo 
topic to talk about officially. And, you know, and even the news, that's like increasingly a difficult sub- subject to, to discuss. I, you know, that can only make it worse. You know, mental health is already something that in our society, you know, I always think about how on the internet these days, a lot of, I think, Gen Zers have really become a lot more acquainted with what I think of as like therapy speak, you know, like they are very in touch with a lot of these terms, you know, they would talk about stuff like gaslighting, they would talk about, you know, attachment theory, and and all of these things that, you know, really require people to go to therapy a lot before they understand. Um, And in Hong Kong, you know, I haven't really seen that at all. You know, there's like a proliferation of it online. But around me, no one is really, you know, sitting me down and talking about, um, you know, uh, what this, what is a secure attachment? What is like an anxious, you know, um, avoidant type? You know, nobody knows these things here. Um, so I think, you know, even the level of discussion in terms of how we understand ourselves and our mental health struggles is already something that's a huge difference. And I think the last thing to add to that is um, I was actually reading a book um, that came out last month. And it's about complex CPTSD. And it's called What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. She is also, she's an audio audio producer in addition to a writer. Um, But she is from a Malaysian family. And she was talking about the abuse that she was constantly subjected to, mostly perpetuated by her mother when she was growing up. Um, It was physical abuse. It was emotional abuse. It was verbal abuse. And then when she was 16, like her, her father took off as well after her mom and she was basically left to take care of herself. And, and, you know, when I was reading the book, like I, you know, I got very frustrated on her behalf and really just angry and upset for her. And at the same time, also realizing that, you know, this is almost like not a rare uh, occurrence, you know, maybe not to that extent, but all of us have grown up, uh, well, many of us, but have grown up with a certain level of emotional and verbal abuse. And it's kind of been just, not justified necessarily, but it's kind of been brushed off because it's so common. Like a lot of families in Hong Kong, a lot of my a lot of my friends in school have grown up with parents who would occasionally or sometimes frequently beat them. Um, and so, you know, when you don't even really have the understanding to call abuse abuse, I think that also really affects you know, the understanding of mental health in general. And so that coupled with everything else that I mentioned in the book, which really is more about um, the economic side of it and about the public hospital system um, and about the lack of psychiatrists, it's much more on like a sort of institutional um, analysis level. But there are all these cultural factors that play into sort of what people call the mental health crisis in Hong Kong. Um, so, yeah, I I don't know. I just, like, I I wish more people would talk about it. Um, and I do think people are more open these days. But there is still that lingering stigma of whenever you talk about mental health, people in Hong Kong still tend to be like, oh, it means you're crazy or something, like, especially from a generation older than ours. So, yeah, hopefully that will change um, with time. 
So I'm going to end with, um, I actually have two questions, but I'm going to combine them into one and you can choose which one you want to answer, if not both. <laughs> you know, I think, it, 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 you know, one thing that I, one part of your book that really stuck out to me um, was the part where you're kind of talking about, uh, where you're talking about the way people not in Hong Kong talk about Hong Kong. Um, oh, yeah. The way it gets, the way, the way it gets reported, the way it gets described, the way it gets portrayed. Um, and, and so I guess kind of, and, and, and the shorthand can be, can be for lack of a better term, can be extremely annoying people that actually like live here and kind of have some idea of what's going on. Um, so you're, so you're pushing back against it. Um, but you know, my, so question one is kind of what, what do you think is missing in how the rest of the world talks about Hong Kong? Yeah. But on the flip side, you know, what perhaps is missing in how in how we and there's people can't see, but there are big air quotes around we as as Hong Kong people think about the city. Sorry, can you repeat the second question? Like what? Um, yeah, uh, maybe maybe I'll just um, like how does it affect how? Yeah, we well, I mean, it, it's, it, so so I think question one is 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 what's missing in how other people talk about the city yeah. and think about the city and understand yeah. it. Yeah. But. On the flip side, kind of what's missing in how in how we, you know, as Hong Kong people, maybe understand our own city? Um, yeah. Is there something that that's that's missing in our own conception that makes that I guess maybe has us follow along with the shorthand because it's easier or something? I don't know. You can you can decide which one of those which which, which avenue you want to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they're related, right? So, like, I in terms of you know how it affects you know how we as people who live here see the city. It's, it's very weird because I, so I've like, I, I feel like I'm on this like personal and like longstanding campaign, like to just sort of protest against romanticizations of Hong Kong. And I do have friends joining me in this like very thankless and stupid um, task of like basically just yelling every time we see people do it. But um, sometimes, you know, you'll see just like these images of Hong Kong, which is like, it, you know, the most typical one is like the the ones where it makes Hong Kong look like extremely cyberpunk. And of course, like mm-hmm. Hong Kong is cyberpunk sometimes, you know, you walk past the street and you look at all these like colored, you know, the lights, um, the color of the lights, like at night. And you're like, oh yeah, like this place is pretty cyberpunk. But, you know, like I think it, it it's not really against like these images that is troubling. I think it's a, a complete inability to see the city beyond those representations like i think the representations themselves are not you know you can say they're um they are romanticized and they're almost fetish fetishized right in a way but at the same time it's not as if like no you know they don't necessarily manipulate the image you know hong kong does look like that it's just like the problem is there's always you know what kind of narratives and what kind of images are championed over others and that's what i think about in terms of hong kong a lot um it's it's i say it's weird because like i feel like i'm constantly complaining about like okay please like can we stop writing about stuff like neon lights and how it's dying out which i think you know and it's weird because it is important and it is something that's changing and it is you know (laughs) a dying craft that should be preserved but you know 
this is the kind of stories that international media are only interested in, right? And I think in resisting it, it's it's weird because in a way, in order to resist it, you have to basically point out the similarities between Hong Kong and Hong Kong people and also other places, right? So you have to be like, okay, you know, like we really are just like normal human beings um, living in a city. Whereas it's always made out to be in the news as like, oh, young, defiant um, demonstrators, like resisting a regime or like, oh, cult, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, like cold capitalists who are obsessed with making money, um, living in this, you know, like Wong Kar Wai-esque city that's so pretty or whatever, um, and so busy and so chaotic. And, you know, in order to almost have to reject that, you have to actually point out, okay, you know what, like, these are the struggles that these these Hong Kongers are going through and they really are not, you know, extremely unlike, for example, perhaps what people are also going through. in, let's say, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say Singapore, but that's like the top of my head, but Singapore or like New York or London or whatever, it's just in a very different cultural context and with a very different set of policies. But, you know, pointing out similarities isn't something that, is going to get you published in international media. Um, well, of course, because it's like it's, it's like well, if it's the same as everywhere else. Then why are we talking well, about exactly, it? You know? Exactly. It's like if you know if okay, it's like yeah, you're going through this problem, um, but so are people in the U.S. And I'm a U.S.-based publication, so of course I'm going to talk about the specific problem in the context of like the U.S. Right? Why would I need to hear about it um, from Hong Kong? But like when you don't talk about very everyday things, you know, which is basically just all of those stuff, you know, like what it's like to have a job here, you know, like what are mortgages and, you know, like um, what it's like when you go out on the weekends, what do you do with your friends? What are your heartbreaks? When you don't tell like the most like, you know, almost mundane human stories, people forget that you're human beings. And I think that was sort of a lot of this coverage um, coming out of Hong Kong always has this, like, they tend to want to make people out to be heroes. You know, it's always, like, these, like, characters that are portrayed in this way, like, oh, like, look how brave they are. And they are extremely brave, you know, like, thinking about a lot of the people who have had to face a lot of prosecution. Um, But, you know, there's, there's just this danger in reducing an entire city um, and not understanding them as people like you or me, because then you actually put more distance between the reader and this person that they're reading about. And, you know, I think it actually makes it harder for, for them to care about these people who are really far away when something like a major protest isn't happening. Right. And, it becomes abstract for them immediately because they don't necessarily see you as like a friend that they could also hang out with or like someone you would know in your life. And I think that is like, it's something that I don't really have an answer for. I'm still struggling in terms of like, what, it, what does it mean to tell stories about people and stories about people in a place that is changing so quickly? Because I'm always 
just very worried about whether or not I'm doing like a terrible job and you know like it's actually like very uninteresting you know because I do think the best stories or like not best but like the, the more interesting stories are the ones where you find out these very quirky characteristics about a living person and then or like some very scandalous thing or outrageous thing has happened in their lives and you chronicle it um and that's that's all those always make you know a better story right but it also feels so divorced from a lot of the lives of people that i know and i think a lot of the times when I'm writing, I'm just really trying to pull that distance closer, like what is depicted on the page and, you know, the the lives of people around me. I'm just trying to like, hopefully have some people understand us as, you know, see us as fully fleshed, um, but also, you know, have people who are here, you know, they don't need me to explain housing and mental health to them. They know what's, what's up, right? Um, and so, you know, they're not necessarily reading the book in order to gain more information, but I do hope that they will actually perhaps see themselves in the pages of the book, which I think the majority of Hong Kong books in English in the English language have been so far, you know, it's very difficult for them to do that because they're not written even by, you know, people who have lived in Hong Kong for a long time. It's a lot of people who are, yeah. Who, who, who don't really consider it home. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, I think I, I think you did. And I think this is actually a, a great place to end our conversation. Thank you for listening to the interview with Karen Chung, author of The Impossible City, a Hong Kong memoir. I actually have some actual final questions, which are, um, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next for you? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> People can find my work. Uh, well, there's like a where there's like a catalog of like pieces I've written, like a selection of pieces I've written on my website, karenchung.com, karen-chung.com. Um, but um, at <laughs> there's also like weird like zines that are published in Hong Kong um, that some of them are still in circulation, some of them aren't anymore, and they're probably like in someone's like flat or like in a random library like community library somewhere. Sometimes that's where my writing is. Um, and it's also collected in two anthologies. Um, but yeah, um, the easiest, I guess, is to really, I don't know, maybe follow me on social media, even though I've been trying to stay away from it a little bit more and have less screen time. But yeah, that's where I'm going to be posting things that I would write. Um, and in terms of next step, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I want to try to learn how to write fiction, which is something that I've, I've never really been successful in doing, like I've tried when I was younger. Um, but I, I, I still don't really understand, I think the craft of fiction and that's something I'm trying to do. Um, and I think it's because after writing something that's, you know, classified as a memoir and a lot of the times, you know, having people say like, Oh, I feel like I know you. <laughs> it's like a very daunting thing to hear because I would think like, no, you don't know anything about me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think I want to put 
a little bit of fake distance because I don't actually think fiction gives you more distance. It's just it's just a facade of distance um, between the writer and their work. Um, but it, because it's like a universally accepted facade, people will try less to figure out autobiographical details about you, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, I think that's what I'm going to, I, I oh, want I a little bit I have definitely gotten that impression from some of the fiction interviews that I've done on this show. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I see, I, I potentially see the connections here, um, but I won't mention them. Um, yeah. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asiabooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. Um, and there are accounts author interviews the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us writing in around, interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Anatole Levin and Harry Verhoeven, editors of Beyond Liberal Order, States, Societies, and Markets in the Global Indian Ocean. But before then, thank you so much, Karen, for joining me today. Thank you for having me.